Hello and welcome to a new season of podcast from the edge with me, Peter Bruce. My guest today is frankly a little intimidating. I've met him once briefly, and even then he said something so breathtaking to me, I wasn't quick enough to ask him the follow-up I'm going to start this interview with. Andre Pinar is a special South African, born and raised here, the son of a predicant. He played a key role in establishing law and order in South Africa after 1994, uh, with Nelson Mandela's patronage and backing. And now he lives and works between Washington and London, running a very high-powered venture capital firm, C5 Capital, look it up, with truly exciting investments in cybersecurity, space exploration, and energy. Andre, the thing that struck me at a lunch we both attended a few months ago wasn't merely your enthusiasm, perhaps, for perhaps a new age of safe and modular nuclear power, but how many Afrikaans names you come across when you look at one of your most important investments, X-Energy. Its chief scientist is Eben Mulder, once an advisor here to ESCOM, chief scientist of the Pebblebed Modular Nuclear Reactor Program, Martin van Staden. You're recreating just not just the old team discarded by ESCOM, but you're going to build the pebble bed again, aren't you? It is. It's wonderful to be on um, on your podcast. Um, yes. So South Africa helped to create um, the advanced nuclear renaissance and a great deal of the know-how that's now enabling um, the nuclear industry to innovate and to provide clean energy in a reliable, scalable way. For, for our growing energy needs comes from South African science. And all the uh, wonderful scientists you mentioned have played a, a leadership role in establishing advanced nuclear as a reliable solution to help us combat climate change. How did this just go, take a step back there? I mean, peb, the pebble bed was abandoned by ESCOM because it didn't work, we were told. Well, the pebble bed program was cl- closed down by President Zuma. Um, at the time when it was closed down, it was at the cutting edge of world science. Um, and that's demonstrated and confirmed by the fact that, as you say, X-Energy, one of the leading small modular nuclear reactor companies in the world, scooped up these scientists, brought them to Washington, D.C., and now they are working on the Advanced Nuclear Reactor Program, which is a U.S. Department of Energy program that's going to establish one of the first small modular nuclear reactors for Washington State the first state in the U.S. that legislated clean energy. So um, the Pebble Pit program was a spectacular success, and it's something that South Africa can feel enormously proud of. Um, and it has really transformed the nuclear industry and has transformed our ability to combat climate change. So just step back a little bit there, because obviously there's a discussion to be had about nuclear power and renewable power. But what is it about the Pebble Pit that's different? What makes it so sort of intellectually and presumably industrially competitive? That's a great question, Peter. A number of reasons. One is um, the pebble in the pebble bed, or as it's called today, trisophil, which means that the enriched uranium um, is encased in graphite, in three layers of graphite in the form of a pebble. And that pebble uh, gets distributed in a high-temperature gas reactor, uh, which means that the reactor is entirely safe both from a, a meltdown risk and from um, from pr- proliferation risk, and that's been that's been transformative for the 
for the future of the nuclear industry. And and I, I had a pebble once, so I can't remember what happened to it actually, but it was about the size of a tennis ball. It might still be somewhere in your house. <laughs> no, no, look for, look for something glowing in the dark one day. But but it was a it was about the size of a tennis ball. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's about it's about the size it's about the size of a, of a of a tennis ball, and of course the pebbles can be can be even smaller yeah. than that. And this, this, the second thing that's amazing about the pebble bed design, Peter, is that you can modularize nuclear reactors. So you can create a, a nuclear reactor that is mobile and that you can transport. Yeah, I remember this is something that you talked about earlier on. You you were saying that you could basically build with this technology a nuclear reactor that you could put on the back of a truck and move from one um, point of distribution to another one. Let's say. You know, there was a disaster somewhere and it was, there was no power in, say, the city of Cape Town or Durban. You could drive this reactor to there, plug it into whatever, and you're up and running. Does it switch on and off? I yeah, mean- you can put it on the back of a truck. You can put it in a plane. It's it's entirely mobile. You can then power it on, um, provide emergency power, provide power for remote rural areas, Um provide power for forward military bases and then when it's time to leave you can power it down again very safely put it back on the truck put it back on the plane and take it to where it has to go next if i can take a moment just to to put where we are with nuclear energy um in a in a sort of a timeline perspective um the the 19th the 17th the 18th the 19th century really was the age of 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 coal and um, uh, and of the steam engine. In in the previous century, oil and gas was the leading source of energy with the combustion engine. In the 21st century, nuclear energy is going to be the most important source of transformational energy that's available to humans. And there's a logical progression here because nuclear energy really is star power. When we create nuclear energy, we use exactly the same chemical processes with which the sun creates energy. At the moment, we're doing nuclear fission, which means we split atoms, um, and and we've now we've now mastered with pebble bed technology and and other forms of innovation the ability to use this incredible power of the sun with nuclear fission um, safely and with much lesser risk, and we've developed the ability to make it mobile. But the next phase of innovation, which is already on the rise, in nuclear fusion, where we will actually be fusing. Um, nuclear atoms together will be the cleanest form of um, of energy and the most abundantly available and the cheapest form of energy that's been uh, produced for human civilization and already we can see it on the horizon over the course of the last year nuclear fusion has attracted about four or five billion dollars of investment and one of the largest um, joint projects in the world um, is a nuclear fusion reactor in france which is being supported by, yeah. by many many countries look i mean Nuclear fusion is a bit scary, Andre. If you don't mind me saying, I mean, we we are this is this is the god particle, right? This is um, uh, I certainly won't be alive. But I'm sure to see that in commercial. I'm very much hoping that you will be, Peter. <laughs> but surely, uh, surely the argument um, uh, that uh, renewable energy is cheap is the cheapest form of energy is already one. Why are we chasing nuclear when? We've got a cheaper alternative and, and, and an incredibly safe one. 
Renewable energy is, is a really important part of the solution to combat climate change. And the fact that we can draw the power of the sun with solar as, you, as you're doing in your house um, or with wind turbines or, or indeed the, the energy of the waves with the sea are fantastic sources of renewable energy. The challenge with renewable energy is, um, uh, one, we have, um, we have had um, disruptive weather patterns um, and, and extreme weather has often impacted the reliability and availability of, of renewable energy. And then secondly, we also have supply chain challenges in that a lot of the, a lot of the technology for re renewable energy at the moment comes out of China. And, um, and we really have to build a, a safe and a secure supply chain for renewable energy going forward. And so is there, is there a lot of, I know, I know that there's a lot of, there are a lot of companies involved in chasing when building their versions of small modular reactors, Rolls Royce, I think, in the UK, um, uh, is, is has got about two hundred and fifty million pounds from the U from the UK government to 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 try its luck. Uh, Bill Gates is trying, I think, up in Oregon somewhere. Um, uh, you, you you're doing what you're doing. Um, what about the American government? I was doing a little reading before this discussion, and from what I can see. Their investment in nuclear for the future is to um, spend a, a great deal of money in extending the life of the, the power plants that they already have, but not necessarily throw that much money at investors like yourself who, who are trying an entirely new sort of angle on nuclear technology like the people did. So um, the US government is really playing a leading role in supporting um, nuclear innovation. The Biden administration has done the largest allocation in, um, in US history to support um, uh, advanced nuclear innovation at all levels. <clears throat> so for example, X-Energy, which was founded by Dr. Cam Ghaffari and, and Dr. Ivan Mulder, um, has a uh, participation in a $1.8 billion DOE um, support program to establish this first um, small modular nuclear act in Washington State. <clears throat> and X Energy is one of only two companies that have qualified for this advanced uh, reactor demonstration program. The only other one being TerraPower, Bill Gates' company. Um, Rolls Royce has a really interesting product. Um, theirs is a generation three reactor. So it's not as advanced as X Energy and TerraPower. But there you have the possibilities of industrial scale, of um, beginning to produce advanced nuclear reactors. Uh, on an industrial scale in the same way that we look at the safety of aircraft engine for example yeah. so so i think there's a lot of there's a, an enormous amount of potential here yeah then you then you manage or you have managed to join um um your interest in nuclear power with your interest in space exploration you've invested in a company called axiom space please correct me if i'm wrong which has already won a contract i think that's right to build its own space station or to build onto the existing space station because there's a there's a last docking area left on the existing space station. You've now won, or Axiom, in which you're an investor, has won the right to build onto that docking station. And um, uh, you're going to... Um, you're, going to you're going to build an entirely new space station. Yeah, that's right. Um, Axiom Space was founded by the same 
founder of then X Energy, Dr. Cam Kafarian. And um, um, if you're interested in nuclear, you have to be in space because nuclear energy, as I said, is really about star power. It's about simulating the energy of the sun. And so nuclear inevitably takes you into space. Um, and Axiom Space um, will launch the successor to the International Space Station in 2024-2025 to attach, as you say, to the existing space station. And then there will be a period of decommissioning for the existing station. And um, in addition to Axiom Space, there are several other consortiums that are planning to launch space stations in the foreseeable future. But what's really exciting about this and what appeals to us as South Africans who are largely, and you know, if you go back in all our history, we are we are people of nomads. We've we've all come to South Africa in different ways and by different routes. And so we have that innate restlessness of the next frontier and the next horizon that's in our blood as a as a nation. And um, the space station project is really all about the next horizon and and for humans to live and work in space safely. And of course, in the International Space Station, we've now had that successfully for 20 years. We've had more than 250 yeah. astronauts who lived and worked in space. So this is a question of how can we scale this? How can we innovate yeah. this? And where can we go next? You didn't go to school with Elon Musk by any chance, did you? I think Elon went to Pretoria Boys High, and I'm an Eastern Cape boy. Oh, okay. So the really interesting thing about the space station, however, for, for South Africans, um, particularly those with an interest in the Pebblebed modular new modular reactor is that you're going to put one into the into the space station that's the plan if i have that right so it's, it's floating above us soon whether it's 2024 or a bit later on i don't know you because obviously you build these things uh, as you when you can and with each launch i'm sure cost an absolute fortune um uh but the, your your space station is going to run on nuclear power on a pebble bed reactor. The the successor to the International Space Station, exactly as you say, Peter, will be powered by South African ingenuity and know-how in the form of a small modular nuclear reactor from X Energy. How big will it be? If you think about it, um, we've had submarines powered with um, small modular nuclear reactors safely and aircraft carriers for some time, and so it will be of a similar of a similar size. So the size of a container or something like that. I mean, or is it little a little bit bigger than that? Um, but it, it will it will produce um, significant megawatts for the space station, which will probably be supplemented somewhat by solar power, because the existing international space station is entirely solar powered. Um, and um, and that has challenges to it because the station has to be in position all the time. There are sometimes challenges with the positioning of the panels. The new station, being nuclear powered, will enable a whole range of new industrial functions on the station. And the, I think the other thing that's really exciting about this is at the moment the International Space Station is a very exclusive club. Twenty-seven countries are involved in it, um, and and the other folks have to stand in the back of the queue. The new space station is open to everybody. It doesn't matter whether you're a small country or a big country or a medium-sized country. And in fact, we are already taking astronauts from countries that haven't been part of the space station club to the existing space station and had a first mission earlier this year where four astronauts from different countries went to the space station. And Turkey, Hungary, Italy, and the UAE, Saudi Arabia uh, will all be sending astronauts the UAE and Saudi, some of the first female astronauts to the International Space Station. 
Presumably, there'll have to be a nuclear engineer of some kind on board all the time once this uh, once this reactor is there. Yes. Right? Yeah. Exactly like in a submarine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is really exciting for Africa. Several countries in Africa have space programs. South Africa has a space program. And the new space station really enables every country in the world to build a space program. And most recently, Axiom has announced um, a program which any country in the world can join to develop a focus series of projects for the new space station. One of the exciting things we should think about in South Africa is establishing our own, our own um, space city, our own star haven. Uh, where we can um, help African countries launch small satellite, where we can have ground stations to connect with satellites, probably combined with cloud computing, maybe nuclear energy powered, uh, and where we can also participate in um, astronaut travel. Andre, so just to help me with something, though. Presumably, um, in venture capital, I understand um, the excitement of the chase and the and the and the adventure of trying something new. But at some stage, you've got to expect a return. How do you, how do you, how do you write? What is the return on a nuclear um, powered space station consist of? I mean, what do, how, how would you expect to make money off it? In venture capital, you've got to take a long term view. You can't be in it for the short term, and you're in a situation of deferred returns. Um, but in both um, SpaceX, in both um, uh, X Energy and um, Axiom Space. We have invested into two proven models. As you said, the, the pebble bed model was already proven in South Africa in a, in in a, in the South African University as a as a proven model. There was no risk about whether this technology works. Um, it was already at the cutting edge of innovation. And similarly, we know that space stations work because we've had one for the last twenty years, and the Axiom yeah. team um, actually led the International Space Station program for a long time. The, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary that uh, that so much could be happening connected to us in some way in South Africa. But but apart apart from us, obviously you've made your life and career and your success um, a long way away from um, uh, from home. But is there any you know you 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 know our power problems well? You've been in the country fairly recently. Um, is there any way out of this uh, uh, power crisis for a country like South Africa with with the technology that we currently have at our disposal? Yes. Um, I, I think South Africans have shown remarkable ingenuity and resilience in coping with the, with the, with the failure of ESCOM. Um, and I think our podcast is, a, is an example of that. Um, I'm, I'm just amazed at how South Africans not only have, have found solutions for their homes, for their businesses, but also have found solutions in their work schedules to cope with the, with the energy crisis. And I think that's just another example of the extraordinary resilience um, of, of, of South Africans. Um, but we have all the technology, we have all the know-how, we have all the resources at our disposal to make South Africa an energy exporter. There's absolutely no reason for South Africa to be in an in in energy crisis at the moment. Um, we should be an energy exporter. We have all the resources and, and capabilities um, to accomplish that. And, and, and what the government needs to do is to unleash private sector innovation and, and, and deregulate the sector. And the government has already started doing some of that, but to go to a complete state of deregulation so that 
so that you can unleash the greater forces of the private sector to return South Africa to be one of the world's leading um, energy exporters and then have energy companies that are eminently investable as ESCOM used to be. I mean, as a you know, just st- stepping away from from the business of it all, you're an Afrikaner, perhaps even a super Afrikaner. You're doing impossible things. You're flying high between the capitals of the north northern hemisphere. What view, in your mind, does the world that you occupy uh, have of South Africa now? I mean, has it changed over time? Yes, I'm. 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 I'm, we, a, I'm a. I'm a small businessman. Um, and so I bring a small businessman's perspective to this. Um, South Africa has changed enormously. Uh, on some level, South Africa has changed for the good and keeps changing for the good. And interpersonal relationships in South Africa are extraordinarily good. Um, the way people get on with each other on a day-to-day basis. But, this, but the, the, the economy and the state are broken. And... That's despite all the latent talent that we have in the country. The, the actual number of people who have migrated from South Africa are actually comparatively small. Most people have chosen to stay in the country and to try and help make it work. Um, most business people that I know, um, people that I know in science, engineering, have been offering their, their, their support up and, and it hasn't been, it hasn't been taken up by the government. So that's a, that's a serious point of concern. Um, but we have, everything available at our disposal to turn this situation around. And we must all do everything we can to do that. So um, Max Dupree did a very good interview with you last year, and it's still there on, on Freya Vyakplat, which I understand you've just helped um, help rescue, which for which as a journalist, I thank you very much. Um, uh, but, so, but I don't want to go over the territory that you and he spoke about last year. Um, but in the early 90s, you were at a uh, university, I think, in Wales, and you were um, you somehow stumbled across each other, you and Kroll, the private security group, and they were, turns out they were looking for a South African, and that led you to um, back to South Africa and meeting Nelson Mandela, playing not a small hand in the formation of the Scorpions. We're talking in the mid-90s now. And I wonder what you think of the the difference that the absence of the scorpions makes now because you're a you're still a fundamentally security driven guy um and i just wonder what you think the destruction of the scorpions did to us we did um um it was it was other south africans and and um and, and kind of generous people that played a, a crucial role in my career. Peter Phelan, another South African who also studied um, in Port Elizabeth and comes from the Eastern Cape, retired from British Special Forces and joined Kroll. And my tutor at university introduced me to Peter and said it was Peter who, who gave me an opportunity to work at Kroll. And I'm an, I remain an, another Peter. I remain enormously grateful to Peter who gave me that opportunity. And then, of course, enormously grateful to President Mandela and the then Deputy President Becky, um, Ministers Mufamadi, Naklankla, Dalla Omar, um, Ronnie Castles, who all stepped forward and put their arms around Kroll and said, South Africa needs help to fight organized crime, to fight terrorism, to help make peace in the region, and who had the courage to build the Scorpions as 
what was one of the best law enforcement and counter-terrorist units in South Africa. And the, and the Scorpions were killed by organized crime. There's no question about it. Um, the Scorpions uh, were so efficient, were so impactful, that the, that the big organized crime syndicates who had their hands on senior leaders in the government used politics to kill the Scorpions as a unit. And the, the Scorpions was an extraordinary organization because it was um, a, a, an ex extremely technically adapted organization. It created this unique model of prosecution-led, uh, uh, prosecution-driven, intelligence-led investigations, combining uh, pro prosecutors, intelligence officers, and investigators, detectives, essentially, um, to go after organized crime groups. And when the Scorpions was crushed by President Zuma, uh, we lost a lot of that expertise. Um, and secondly, the Scorpions built an international network of law enforcement partners that was second to none, which meant that they could really go after cross-border crime, which is essential when you wanted to go after big criminal organizations. And, and that was also deliberately degraded. And the last head of the Scorpions, Leonard McCarthy, was then persecuted and victimized by uh, President Zuma and and corrupt journalists around him um, through the whole spy tape saga. So unfortunately, when you fight crime, there's often a very heavy price to pay for it. And um, and Leonard and the Scorpions did that. It wasn't, of course, only Zuma who put his hand up to kill off the Scorpions, and Bicky did as well. That process was a, was something Zuma inherited when he when he when he um, came into office. Um, the, the the decision that they had to go, I'm sure I'm right, had already been taken by the time um, by the time Zuma won um, the ANC leadership. Not familiar with all the details, but you're right that the Scorpions uh, was probably being attacked on multiple fronts and on, on multiple fronts in the end. Um, they were they were doing two very tough investigations at the same time: the investigation into Jackie Celebe. Um, and uh, with Lloyd and Becky, Becky, uh, that goes back to President Becky, and then the Zuma investigation simultaneously, and that's a that's a very tough mission to do two such sensitive investigations simultaneously. Andre, as you say, you know we, we're very broken here now in South Africa. I mean, only the private sector really works, um, and life for it is increasingly difficult. The government can't keep the lights on, it can't keep the trains moving, it can't keep the ports open. Is there an investment case to make for South Africa still, do you think? Yes. Um, well, you just cited an investment I made. I invested in the Freya Vierplatt. Um, um, yeah, there you go. And I invested in the Freya Vierplatt because I believe in South Africa and I believe in um, first I believe in the integrity of South African journalists. South African journalists played an enormously courageous role, and Peter, you were one of them, you are one of them, who fought state capture um, very bravely, um, who, who brought Putin's war machine to a halt when they tried to foist an $80 billion um, Soviet-era nuclear reactor on the country, which was priced at 13 times the true cost of, um, of establishing the reactor. So um, I think South Africa journalism is a, is a great example of the of the potential and the resilience of, uh, of 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 South Africans and also of the talent we have in South Africa and 
So that's why I invested in the Freivir plan. I believe there's an opportunity for digital innovation. You can innovate despite the challenges that we have in the country. And um, and then there's a there's a tradition of um, of of ethical journalism and integrity which which Max Dupree has established, and that's worth backing and supporting. So I believe in investing in South Africa. I'm going to continue to find opportunities to invest in South Africa, and. Um, and when you invest in South Africa, and, and in fact, when you make any investment, any venture capital investment, you are ultimately investing in people. Whether you invest in X Energy or uh, based in here in Maryland or Action Space based in Texas or in the Freya Vierplatt based in Cape Town, you are investing in people. And South African people are investable. If the city of, if the city of Cape Town or the city of Bloemfontein or Durban um, put its hand up once you had your um, uh, pebble bed reactors, um, coming off a production line, would they be um, would they be considered viable clients? Yes. So at the moment, Kuburg uh, is the only civilian nuclear reactor in Africa. It provides about when it func- when it's functioning, it provides about ten percent of the country's energy, and it is the most uh, one of the most reliable sources of energy that the country has. At the moment, I'm very concerned about the power station and the maintenance of the power station and everything that needs to be done to continue for that power station to operate. If we can keep Kuba going, which we should, Kuba gives a fantastic foundation for South Africa to build a nuclear innovation program that can be exported to the rest of Africa. Advanced nuclear energy is exportable, unlike, um, unlike all the challenges around proliferation that one had with legacy nuclear. You don't have that with advanced nuclear. And about 18 African countries have expressed an interest to acquire nuclear programs and to build nuclear programs. And at the last COP conference, the US government announced the nuclear future package. Um, Kenya was a member of that, Ghana is a member of that, and they are being yeah. they are preparing their countries for advanced nuclear energy, which they will get in the next decade or so. So I was just reading an article before this interview um, about a subsidiary of X Energy, which is building a fuel, a, a fuel plant, I think, in Tennessee. Um, uh, which it expects to be able to supply about, I, I might get my numbers wrong here, I think it was 80 tons or maybe 8 tons uh, of fuel a year um, from about 2025, which it says, in, according to the story I read, it was in the Washington Post, I think, um, would be enough to supply 20 modular reactors, small ones. Um, do you have orders for these things already? I mean, you, you there's no there's no holding you back. I mean, it's not as if this is not on paper any longer. I mean, this is this is holes in the ground and and money being spent. This is this is real. The the, the program for the deployment of the first small small modular nuclear reactor in Washington State is well underway. Um, site selection has been done. Um, there's been a groundbreaking ceremony. This is real and it's happening. And given that this, so much of this ingenuity and know how comes from South Africa, South Africa has to be part of it. And I think one of the ways um, in which uh, South Africans can be part of it is to find career opportunities in the nuclear industry. Because if uh, ESCOM doesn't embrace this, or if the South African government doesn't embrace it, there are going to be other countries in Africa that will want to have this know how and ingenuity. And I think there's a, there's a scope. There remains scope to build a very vibrant 
um, advanced nuclear energy. You can, you can, you can hand on your heart, Andre. Put a hand on your heart and say this is this is green as it gets. Yes. This is clean. Yes. Yeah, so, so it it doesn't create any any carbon that goes into uh, into our climate. It's completely fossil free, fuel free, and um, uh, the amount of waste that a small modular nuclear reactor create is now. Um, significantly more modest than the old legacy reactors, and it's encased in graphite, so it's it's storable on site, um, and the life cycle of it is much shorter. I was, you know, you, you'll have, you'll have followed the European debate following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, where the Europeans suddenly declared gas and nuclear suddenly green again. Yes. Most European countries have extended the lifetime of their nuclear reactors now. Yes. Yeah. But what has happened was that, and, and, and there's a very interesting side story about the French and the state of their nuclear fleet because they're, you know, being being um, sort of quite secretive about it. There's a, there are a lot of problems in that fleet. It's old and it's corroding, and and um, and it's, uh, France's neighbours are concerned about it. Um, but but the the what has happened in europe was they said okay well you know suddenly we we need gas and we need other you know we can't have the oil we can't have russian oil we can't have russian gas um uh, but there's been now a challenge to that from the austrian government in the last couple of days um who are taking the european commission who made this decision to court um and it may well be thrown out or modified in some way um and it it in a way i'm quite looking forward to it because i still want this argument i i want to follow the argument slowly and in big writing because i want to understand why it is that people who 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 back renewable power are so mortified at the prospect of of nuclear if the end result is that neither emits any carbon the nuclear energy provides 50% of the U.S.'s fossil-free fuel um, and doesn't do any carbon emissions. So it's definitely part of the solution for, for combating climate change and a, and a very important one. Yeah. So generally in closing up, I mean, we, we I just want to talk briefly about Ukraine and Russia and, and our position in in the world regarding that conflict. You know, it's a... It's astonishing because despite the scale of our economic crisis and the fact that we steadfastly refuse to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa is doing quite well on the diplomatic front. He flew to Washington uh, last month, was it, to meet President Biden. I think the Spanish Prime Minister is coming to see him soon, and he has a state visit soon to the UK. He's going to meet King Charles III. Um, is he or are we sort of Teflon coated? Can we do no wrong, or is the world does the world know what's going on? Does the world care what we think about Ukraine? Yes, the world the world cares very much. In 2017, I worked with the Carnegie um, Foundation here in Washington to raise awareness of um, of Russian's predatory policy in Africa. And throughout my career, I've worked on 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 many Russian issues. Doing due diligence, doing investigations, um, meeting with Russian government officials in a, in a liaison capacity, um, and also with Russian business people. And so I know the country well, I know the people well. There is just no cause in the 21st century for any country, for whatever reason, to invade another, to change territorial lines. 
There's just no cause. Whatever your grievance or your concerns are, there are just no cause to launch a conventional war on another country to change boundaries in which you're going to kill tens and tens of thousands of civilians. There's no justification for it. And and no one and do you recognize this? Do you recognize any legitimacy in the South African decision not to condemn that invasion? As I said, there's no there's absolutely no justification for any country to invade another, uh, to change boundaries and 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 to occupy and to destroy a, a country that's been recognized by the United Nations um, as a state for, for, for several decades. This is absolutely no justification for it. No one can, yeah. can, can draw an ethical or, or a moral justification for it. But my, my, it's just plain wrong. My question simply, I guess, was another, put it, put it another way. Why are we getting away with it? Why are we being invited still to dinner? I think there's a very serious conversation that the, that the, um, that the US and the UK and, and uh, the European countries are having with South Africa at the moment. Let me put this for you into context, Peter. Um, at the moment, um, Russia provides 0.5% of Africa's global trade. So if you look at all of Africa's global trade, it's about the same as, um, uh, as, as India's global trade. Um, but um, Russia provides 0.5% of our, of our global trade and investment. Um, China provides about uh, 17%. U.S. is at about 12%. Uh, Europe is at 35%. The combined West, if you put all of the Western countries who are trading and investing in Africa together, that's about 60%. So there's no commercial justification. There's no business case. There's no investment justification that could be made for for um, supporting Russia on its invasion in the Ukraine. And in many ways, uh, Russia is a competitor with African countries. The products, the commodities which they promote in the global markets compete with our own. Um, Africa's destiny is with the West for for a number of reasons. One, the the, the long history of um, the long mutual history that we have with Christianity and the role of the Church, um, the historical ties between Africa and Europe, um, the fact that most countries in Africa today are democracies like we have in the West, and so. And there's a very serious conversation that's underway in the run-up to President Biden's African Heads of State Summit about how can we, how can we rebuild, how can we innovate, how can we strengthen the relationship between Africa and, um, and, and the West in the 21st century? Because I think the majority on both sides recognize that's where the partnership lies. Africa doesn't want to be in the authoritarian camp of Russia and China. Africans don't want to live in societies where you get surveilled at home um, by the security police and where you get followed and where your opinions get censored. Africans love freedom. And I believe that collectively that's where we're going to come out at the end. Well, I hope so. I mean, let me ask you lastly, Andre, um, about Afrikaners, um, as you know them as you are, um, who are still here, yeah, stoic people, self-reliant. They still take a hell of a hammering for apartheid, deservedly, um, uh, in some cases, and not so in others. Many have left, but a lot of most have stayed behind, as you said earlier on. Um, what do we say to those Afrikaans people? How do they? What do they do? Peter, I'll say I'll say a sentence in Afrikaans. I guess, um, geweldig trots. 
om, om Afrikaner te wees en, en, en deel te wees van die besonderse klein groepie mense wat oor verskye eeuwe in Afrika woon. My, um, my ancestors were French Huguenots who arrived in, in Africa in 1680 fleeing the religious persecution in Europe and have been, made, been making a living in, in Africa since. And once the dust of Africa is in your blood, it's very hard to change. Um, and and I think I think Afrikaners are working very hard to become part of the solution, not only in South Africa, but across Africa. Whenever I've met with Afrikaners, whether it's in, in agriculture, or in business, or in organized labor, the, the voices that I hear is are very constructive. These are people who want to help build the country, who want to help make the country and the democracy that South Africa has become a success. Um, yeah. Look, I mean, I have to say, you know, and uh, when I say things are really bad, I also need, as you can see, I've got electricity. We have this connection. The local ones where I live are outstanding. And, you know, with a decent fly, half the Springboks <laughs> could even win the Rugby World Cup next year for the first time. I see you wearing a Sharks cap over there. Well done. Good club. Um, maybe we just complain too much, Andre. What do you think? I think it's important to face the facts. Um, I, I'm a great admirer of Winston Churchill, and as a leader, he had this remarkable ability to to face the facts, to bring the facts home to the British people at the darkest hour in the Second World War, but at the same time to give them hope. And I think it's crucial that we face the facts. We we can't sugarcoat the facts. We're in a tough situation in South Africa. And we have some really tough challenges ahead of us. But despite despite those tough challenges, there are opportunities. There is hope. Um, I see a remarkable consensus building across South African communities about um, bringing about positive change and, and people trying to find solutions locally, regionally, nationally to keep moving the country forward. At that lunch, which you and I attended, Peter, I was so struck by how everyone at that table and we had such a diverse group of highly accomplished and talented people. We're talking about how do we build the country? There are very few countries in the world where you can convene such a group of people. And you have that kind of consensus. In many of the democracies in the West today, there are deep, deep divisions. People don't talk against, uh, talk to each other. They vilify each other. Um, but I'm struck by the fact that in South Africa, there's a remarkable consensus building. Um, and and the level of commitment and resilience that people are showing. Andre Pinar, what a pleasure it has been to talk to you. Good luck with your uh, many investments and your adventures. Don't forget about us down here. Um, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. I've so enjoyed this conversation. I'll be back next week with another guest on Podcast from the Edge. So you guys look out for yourselves and, and cheers until then. Bye-bye.